Okay, so um, last week uh, we read Philippians 1 and 2. Yeah, it's our reading plan. Isn't that awesome book? It's an awesome letter. And so I want to remind us that we read Philippians 1 and 2 last week. So this week we are going to discuss our here journals that we did based on some verse that we uh, pulled out that God was speaking to our heart in uh, Philippians chapter 1 or 2. And we're going to get together with our families this week and we're going to talk about our our learnings, our, our revelation, what God wants to do with the Word of God in us this week. We're going to get together in our discipleship groups and talk about the Word of God this week. Amen. Amen. And so if you're a guest here um, and you're interested in joining us in our church-wide reading plan, there should be some reading plans out on the Welcome Center. I encourage you to go pick one up and start reading with us. We are going through the Word of God together as a family. It is a super easy reading plan. Like, it is not intense. It's not like, you know, we're doing the whole Bible in 365 days. We are just taking our time going through the Word of God. But I encourage you, because we are asking every family here at New Covenant, every member of our church, to take seriously the call to be disciples to take seriously the call to make disciples of our children and of others who will then therefore go and actually make disciples too. Amen? Like the Great Commission is our driving force, is it not? And so we've got to be a people who obey Jesus' last command to us. Go, therefore, and make disciples of nations. And it starts at home starts with our own children. It starts with the family of God. It starts with those in our city who don't know Jesus. And so we are asking everyone to please, please get on the reading plan with us. Please discuss and do your hear journals. And let's disciple each other, our children, and those who really don't know the Lord. That's ultimately what this is about. And so again, last week we read Philippians 1-2. Uh, verse, chapters 1 and 2. And so today I want to take, I I take a look at a specific uh, section of Scripture from last week's reading. Um, but before I get into those, um, the, verse that I really, the verses that I want to uh, look at, I want to give us just a little bit of a history lesson on uh, this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians. Are you guys cool? Who likes history, anyone? Yeah, I hated it in high school, I'm not going to lie, hated every bit of it, but uh, those who don't know history are destined to repeat it, right? That's what they said, I didn't, I didn't, I was like, whatever, someone pays attention, I don't care, you know, but this is really important stuff, right, because this is our Bible, and this is a topic I am absolutely, completely excited to, to know as much as I can because the Word of God is eternal, amen? And so I want to I just give us some background on this letter to the Philippians. So Philippians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in the city of Philippi. And so Philippi, if you guys look on the map here, is a city in the northeastern part of Macedonia, which is uh, Greece. It's the area of Greece. And so the, the city of Philippi, was actually just a Greek village 
until Philip II of Macedon came and conquered it in 360 B.C. And of course, you know, as every great conqueror does, once they conquer something, what do they do? They name it. (laughs) And so it went from this unknown Greek village to the city of Philippi. And so Philip named it after himself. Now, Philip II um, actually has some fame in his family, and, and not just because he named a city after himself, but because four years later, he has a son, and that son grows up to become Alexander the Great. Now, the Romans come along, as they did, and they capture Philippi in 168 B.C. And when they did that, they made it a part of their province of Macedonia, which is, again, a large, this large area that includes Greece. Now, later, when Octavian became Emperor Augustus, he made Philippi a Roman colony. And it, and it actually became kind of known as this, like, little Rome, you know. Uh, and the reason was because its citizens that lived in Philippi, they spoke Latin, uh, they were governed by Roman law, and they enjoyed all of the same rights as if they were living in Rome. And so it was a big deal. This little colony out in the outer parts of the world actually was just like Rome. And so it was considered a Roman colony, with, and it had Roman laws, it had Roman culture, and it had Roman customs. Now, how did Paul get there? Well, in his missionary travels, uh, he wanted to actually take his, his um, mission travels, he wanted to take the, to, to Asia. He wanted to go to Asia, which is modern Turkey, which down here it says my Asia. Or, mine, or Asia Minor. Um, but Paul wanted to go to Asia with the, with the gospel. But because of a series of events, uh, it hindered him. And so we can read in actually in Acts chapter, chapter 16, verses 6 through 15, it tells us that Paul and his companions tried to go to Asia, but they were stopped by the Holy Spirit. And so instead of uh, they going to Asia they traveled to the coastal part of Tros, which is right down at the bottom there of the map. And while they were at Tros, Paul had a vision. And in this vision, there was a man from Macedonia who was begging them to come and help them. And so Paul was like, this is from God, and we're going we're gonna to obey this vision and we're going to go do it. And so they crossed the Aegean Sea, as you can see. They had to come up, hit on uh, Samothrace. Um, but they came up the Aegean Sea, and they brought the gospel to the con- continent of Europe for the very first time. This is the first time it's touching the continent of Europe. Now, because Philippi is a Roman colony, there are no Jewish synagogues in the city. And Paul's mission tactic, the, the way he would evangelize, the way he was spreading the gospel, is he would begin in the Jewish synagogue of that city, where he would preach Jesus from the Torah. 
but there's no city, there's, or there's no uh, synagogue in Philippi. So Paul can't start their mission by preaching to the Jews. So instead, um, they're out and about, and they find and join a group of women who are praying by a river on the Sabbath day. And one of these women is named Lydia. Lydia is a businesswoman. She deals in very expensive purple cloth, which is the stuff that mostly only emperors can afford because it was just so costly to make. Now, what's really amazing is that even though Lydia is here in the city of Philippi, she actually comes from the city of Thyatira, which is actually a city in Asia. Where was Paul trying to get to? Asia. And now he's got a woman that he's encountering. And she's going to take the gospel. Probably, it's probably more than likely through trade, this gospel is probably going to go back to her hometown, to Asia. Now, Lydia is converted to Christianity. And it's, the Bible tells us that it wasn't just Paul's great your words, you know, it was his great speech, his great talking. It actually says that the Lord opened her heart to welcome the gospel. And so she and her whole household, her family, her servants, they all get baptized. And so Lydia then invites Paul and Silas and his friends to stay with her at her home. And of course, Paul and Silas say, yeah, we will do that. And so and if it was my probably educated guess, I would say that um, this is probably going to be where the house church starts. Lydia the businesswoman. And so over the next few days, Paul and Silas are walking around Philippi and they're being harassed by this fortune teller. And she's a slave girl with a python spirit. And it says that she's a follower of the Greek god Apollo. Now, Paul, he gets angry at the state that she is in. And he's angry because her owners are making so much money from her demonic possession. And so Paul turns around one day and he casts out the evil spirit in the name of Jesus. And she is free from him like that. Now, the slave girl's owners, they're furious, right? Their money's just dried up. And so they drag Paul and Silas before the city magistrates and they accuse them of uh, being Jewish troublemakers who are trying to promote some illegal religion. And so Paul and Silas are brutally flogged and they are chained up in a prison cell. And so they are bloody and they're in prison and they're in so much pain. And what do they do? They start singing. They start singing hymns, and they sing all night until midnight. And then at midnight, something happens. An earthquake hits the jail, and the prison is wrecked, and all the doors open up for every prisoner to go free. Well, the jailer, who's supposed to be watching all of this, assumes everyone has escaped, and so he's getting ready to kill himself by falling on his sword. Because they'll be worse if he doesn't. And just before he does, Paul calls out. And he says, whoa, 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 hang on a second. 
Everything's okay. We're all still here. No one's left. And so instead of escaping, Paul preaches the gospel to this Roman jailer. And guess what happens? He puts his trust in Jesus. And he gets saved. And then he takes Paul and Silas into his own home where he gently washes all of their wounds from being flogged nearly to death. And before daylight, the jailer, his family, everyone were baptized. And so the next day, the orders come for Paul and Silas, and they get released. Now, Paul, he's got a point he wants to make now, right? Because he and Silas, they're Roman citizens. And they've been tried, they've been flogged, and they've been imprisoned illegally. And so they demand and receive an official apology from the city. So, what a whirlwind, right? I mean, and, and, and it's through like this, this miraculous series of events that the church in Philippi is founded. And so, after they spend some time there, Paul and Silas, you know, they move on, but they leave behind this really strange, curious mix of believers, right? We've got a businesswoman, we've got a slave girl, and we've got a Roman jailer who all couldn't have any less in common, right? But this is the church that gets started in Philippi, where they had nothing in common before, maybe probably enemies. Now they're united in the shared life of Christ. And they are the nucleus of this brand new church, which is the first time the gospel ever came to Europe. That's amazing. So Paul did this. He planted this church around uh, 50 A.D. And then about 12 years later, around A.D. 62, Paul is in prison in Rome. He's probably under house arrest. And from prison, Paul writes this letter to the Philippians. And he probably wrote the letter to Colossians and Philemon about the same time. Now, if you haven't figured it out, as you, we read Philippians together, the big idea of Philippians, the big theme is what? Joy. It's joy. Everyone say joy. joy. Say joy. joy. There we go. Like it's a joyful word, right? It's about joy. It's about the happiness and the security that come from knowing Jesus Christ. And so throughout this whole letter, Paul tells us that there's no amount of punishment, there's no amount of imprisonment that can rob him of his inner freedom and his assurance of eternal life. Amen? Amen. And so today I want to look at a specific passage of Scripture. It's a meaty passage in chapter 1. And I want to start in verse 27. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. 
This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. He's still in prison. I don't know how many of you have ever read Shakespeare. Shakespeare wrote several plays involving King Henry V. And a lot of these plays begin with young Prince Henry as a vain, self-indulgent young man who spends his time drinking and carousing with his old buddy, uh, John Falstaff. When Henry's father, the king, dies, Henry changes. Prince Henry realizes his unworthiness. And he realizes that the crown that's, going, that's coming to him comes to him through no goodness of his own. And so he confesses to his dying father. He says, you want it, you wore it, you kept it, and now you gave it to me. And then upon the crown being given to Henry, he vows to live a life worthy of the crown. And he says, the tide of blood in me hath proudly flowed in vanity till now. Now doth it turn and ebb back to the sea where it shall mingle with the state of floods and flow henceforth in formal majesty. From this moment on, King Henry V becomes one of the worthiest, uh, worthiest and most noblest kings of England. His noble heritage that his father had now flowed from him with majesty. And I think there is something very similar to this in the opening line of this letter, verse 27. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, which in effect is a call for us to individually say, Let the tide of blood in me, which is the, the life of Christ, flow henceforth in formal majesty. So I want to unpack want to unpack these verses so that we can learn how to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. The first thing that Paul talks about is this thing of citizenship. Paul first wants us to understand that living worthy of the gospel is tied to citizenship. You see, the phrase only let your manner of life, that phrase, is actually under-translated. It actually should read, only let your manner of life as citizens be worthy of the gospel of Christ. See, that, that phrase, manner of life, is the Greek word politimo, or polit, politiome. Sorry, I've got new glasses and I can't. They're trifocals now. I'm like, which one? I can't, one of these three is going to work. I know it will. Yeah. Oh, there it is. Okay. Polituome. Uh, and it, you know, and if you notice, it shares a root 
with the noun polis, right? Polis means city, right? Like Indianapolis, Minneapolis, right? And so here in verse 27, it means live as citizens. Now, Paul purposely is using this language to make the Philippians think of citizenship because he has in mind their ultimate citizenship, which is in the kingdom of heaven, not Rome. See, Philippi was a colony of Rome in Macedonia, but the Philippian church was supposed to be a colony of heaven. These members were supposed to be living, first of all, as citizens of heaven in the city of Philippi. And so Paul has chosen and he's crafted his words very carefully to encourage these Philippian brothers and sisters as they struggle in that this very self-consciously prideful, elitist little Roman city that was preoccupied with its coveted Roman citizenship. Like, hey, we're a little Rome out here. So Paul is challenging these beloved Philippians with a counter-citizenship whose capital and seat of power are not on earth. They're in heaven. And so these Philippians, he's challenging us to, to live out what they were, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. You know, I think about uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Remember these guys. Remember how they refused to bow down to the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar, right? And they, they knew where their allegiance stood. See, they were not citizens of Babylon. They were people of Yahweh. And they are a perfect example of what it means to live boldly for God. Now, Paul's challenge, like to the Philippians, is the same to us. Living worthy of the gospel means we put our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven before our American citizenship. See, living worthy of the gospel means putting our citizenship before our American citizenship. We live in an increasingly pagan culture. And if you haven't noticed, it is demanding that we bow down. That we bow down to the gods of sex, that we bow down to the God of LGBTQ, CRT, fill in the blank with whatever acronym you want. American society is becoming increasingly angered and hostile towards anyone who chooses to live a life worthy of the gospel. So are we living boldly as citizens of heaven? Or are we bowing down to the gods of culture? I mean, just imagine Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Babylon. You see, before everyone bowed down to this image in Babylon, there would be, they, they commanded that there would be music played. Like they'd strike up music all over the city. And so when that music would start 
plain, everyone was supposed to bow down towards the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I want you to imagine thousands of people everywhere bowing down, but three dudes do not. That's about as bold as it gets. What about us? Are we living worthy of the gospel by first being citizens of heaven? Are we standing while everyone else is bowing? Or are we bowing so that we don't make waves? Don't rock the boat, you know. Get along to go along. Go along to get along. Tolerance, right? Well, let me tell you, no one is tolerating you. Living worthy of the gospel means we put our citizenship and our allegiance with the kingdom of God before any other group, sexual orientation, organization, movement, political party, or ethnic group. We are first citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and that is our first principle of living worthy of the gospel. Amen? Amen. Next, Paul talks about the gospel itself. The evidence of living well as citizens of heaven is a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, the word worthy is a comparative term. Right? It's the picture of scales with something of great value and weight on one side and then comparing it to another thing on the other side of the scale. So Paul, he's telling these Philippian Christians to put the weight and the glory of the gospel on one side of the scale. And then he wants them to put their life, the life that they're living, on the other side. For Paul, the gospel was weighty. It was full of glory. It was first in his life. The gospel was to be adorned uh, by the way that the Philippians lived out their heavenly citizenship. And their partnership or their fellowship in the gospel from the first day is what brought Paul so much joy. Right? He says in, in verse 3, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in what? In what? The gospel from the first day until now. For Paul, the gospel was first. His jailhouse joy rested in the fact that the gospel went out to all the pagan soldiers. He was, he was celebrating that, that the gospel was being preached by his competitors who were trying to wreck his ministry, by the way. Thank God they're talking about Jesus over there, even though they're slandering me. Right? I mean, verse 18, he says, what does it matter? The important thing is, is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. And yes, I will continue to rejoice. 
You see, a gospel-first life was what Paul was commanding to these Philippians. There was never a time when there wasn't hostility toward the gospel in Philippi. Never. Little Rome, this little Rome declared war on Paul and his converts from day one. You know, again, remember, Paul and Silas, they were nearly flogged to death and put in prison from right out from the beginning. So this battle, it was cosmic. It was spiritual. These Philippian believers who were citizens of heaven, they were engaged in mortal combat. And their weapons were what? They were the good news. It was the preaching of Jesus. And it was the lives that they were living that proved to be worthy of the gospel. And this same thing, it applies to us. Are we using our lives and our lifestyles as a weapon in a cosmic battle over darkness? You know, Paul, uh, he repeats this command to live worthy in Ephesians 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. For just a moment, I want you to put the glorious, weighty gospel on this side of the scale. And then I want the life that you're living right now, I want you to put it on the other side. How does it measure? Living as heavenly citizens, it means that we put the gospel first. Now, Paul had so much joy in sharing the gospel and seeing it shared by others. You know, sometimes I wonder if my own personal melancholy is due to a lack of sharing the gospel with others in my own life. You know, I can tell you that one of the happiest times in my life when it, was, it was when I was sharing the gospel and winning souls for Jesus. And it was in a very precious thing to me, a band I had. It was Messiah's Bride. There they are. That's us. I'm sitting on the bottom step there. Right behind me is Mr. Chris Glover. He's mean mugging it. Because you had to when you're in metal. You, gotta, you can't be happy. You got to be angry at something. Uh, the guy with the shades behind me, that's Chris Jesse. He was our keyboard player. The guy with the hat backwards, his name was Terry Overdorf. He was our bass player. And then in the very back, Scott Sparks. He was our lead singer. Yep. In 1996, we played dozens of shows all over <laughs> East Central Indiana. <laughs> Every con- and ev- listen, every concert, because this was my drive, evangelism, the gospel first. Every concert, I would give an altar call. It didn't matter if we were playing for five kids in a youth group or 50 kids at a 
church event. I would give an altar call every single time. And every single time, at least one person came forth and said yes to Jesus. Or they rededicated their life to Christ. I remember we played one show in Greenfield. This guy came up to us afterwards, and he was like, just want you to know I rededicated my life. And I got a band too, but we're gonna, I'm making it a Christian band like you guys. It's like rock and roll, baby. You let me know how that goes. And you know what happened that year that we traveled all over East Central Indiana? Dozens of gigs. We had over 200 youth give their life to Christ. It was the most fulfilling and joyous time of my life. Playing music for Jesus and seeing souls saved was joy in the Holy Ghost. But as I've gotten older and entrenched in church-focused ministry and pastoring, I have to admit I've probably not been as gospel-centric as to the lost as I once was. I want to live a life worthy. And I know you do too. So as I weigh my life against the glorious gospel, I find it lacking. And it's causing me to pray and seek the Lord on how I and we can do more with the gospel. Paul was full of joy because the gospel was going forth. I think it's going to have the same effect on us if we will become a gospel-first, gospel-centered people. So let's talk about some of the characteristics of citizens of heaven who live worthy of the gospel. Let's read it again. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. One thing we got to understand is that the Philippians' commitment to Jesus as their Lord was a threat to the patriotic Romans who ran Philippi. See, the Philippians' allegiance to another Lord other than Caesar was practically treason because it challenged the political establishment. There were times when these early Christians would actually, they, they were actually given, these early Christians were actually given the title of atheist because their loyalty was Christ and it challenged the divinity of Caesar. So these Roman citizens of Philippi who customarily uh, honored the emperor at every public gathering they were pressuring the church to conform. Give honor to Caesar. Christians in Philippi, they were a political embarrassment. 
And, and what's more is Christians who had the audacity to declare with Paul that their citizenship was in heaven, they were thought of as being very un-Roman. In our case, they would call us asleep or not woke. And therefore, enemies of the cultural order of things. And because of this, there was widespread persecution in Philippi and throughout all the churches of Macedonia. I mean, just listen to some of these comments about Christian life in the churches of just in Macedonia. Things like a severe test of affliction, extreme poverty, in much affliction, your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. You see, living as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel, it was costly and it was demanding. And Paul is giving us some of these characteristics. He wants us to see what are the characteristics of those who live as heavenly citizens who are worthy of the gospel. One thing he talks about is spiritual persistence. Paul again, he says, So that whether I come and see you or am absent... I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. Now, when he talks about one spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the Philippians' ability to stand firm, it was supposed to be supernatural. Based on the Holy Spirit's work in them. You see, the Philippians, they were called to stand firm against attacks on the gospel, which required the help and the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Living worthy of the gospel, it has nothing to do with self-will. The Philippians were not asked to, you know, reach down deep in their innermost person and pull themselves together. Get it together. Their resistance to Romans culture, uh, culture's demands uh, to, to compromise the gospel, it came from what God had done in their lives through the work of the Holy Spirit. At the same time, this standing firm in the unity of the Holy Spirit, it's supposed to produce action. Everyone say action. God's great work It's the foundation of all our action. And so spiritual persistence means that we are living and following the supernatural guidance of the Holy Spirit. If we are going to resist our own culture, we are going to have to be spiritually persistent. Our church, our our culture is, is putting pressure on us right now to back off, stand down, walk away, stay quiet. They want us to stop living boldly for Jesus. We're annoyed by you. You know, persecution is painful. And cancel culture is a scary thing. And it will always seem easier to stay quiet, to go along, to pretend that we don't have to engage. 
but at what cost? Living worthy of the gospel is supposed to cost us something. These Philippians, they were persecuted. Christians all around the world today are persecuted. The only way the Philippians could stand, the only way the Christians around the world can stand, the only way we can stand is, guess what? Spiritual persistence. We can't do this on our own. We need the Holy Spirit. Let's just say that. Say, I need the Holy Spirit. I need you, Holy Spirit. We need Him. But if we choose to do nothing, not even the Holy Spirit will interfere with our free will. We've got to live with a great big yes in our spirit to the leadership and the lordship of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Standing firm in the Spirit of God is truly a characteristic of living worthy of the gospel. The next one Paul talks about is teamwork. Unity and teamwork. Right after Paul says, standing firm in one spirit, then Paul says, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That, t- that, that phrase, striving side by side, uh, is a teamwork uh, word. It's teamwork vocabulary of athletes and soldiers. Striving side by side is at the heart of every winning team. Stephen Ambrose, in his book Comrades, he talks about the story of Lewis and Clark uh, and describes the teamwork that they had and that it was the secret of their epic accomplishments. He says, what Lewis and Clark had done, first of all, was to demonstrate that there is nothing that men cannot do if they get themselves together and act as a team. Paul knew that the success of the church in Philippi depended on unity and it depended on teamwork. You know, and of course, the stakes were a lot higher for the Philippians than just exploring the West, right? I mean, it was dangerous, but it was much higher. Their unity and teamwork was centered on the faith of the gospel. It was the faith the increase and the growth of this that unity is built upon. See, this church really needed to be reminded of the importance of unity and teamwork. And as we're going to read later in uh, chapter 4, Paul, Paul. as we read in chapter 4, Paul, he's going to call out two women And tell them to stop arguing and be in unity. To agree in the Lord. And to continue their teamwork in the gospel. See, it's vital that Christians are united. This is so important for our confidence, for our fellowship, for our witness. See, together we can withstand the enemy. We can withstand the enemy. We can confront our opponents with assurance and hope. You know, uh, 
One thing we, we love to remember around here is Ron Gideon's vision of the army standing side by side, facing the enemy, right? And as long as we stood together side by side, we overcame the enemy. But when we started looking at each other and arguing, the enemy overtook us. You see, living worthy of the gospel means that we are in unity and we stay in unity. And so Paul uses this language of soldiers because they knew the secret of the Roman army's success. And it was that they fight as a single unit. The Romans linked their shoulders or their shields together and they would make a wall of defense. And when things started falling apart, they would quickly reform their lines. Or they would create a wedge attack and they would pierce the enemy. Will we as Christians be any less committed to one another than pagan soldiers? Who's your teammate? Who's your team? Who are you fighting side by side with? One of my favorite teammates is my wife. She's always by my side. And we do our best to live in unity. And I thank God that we agree in the Lord when it comes to parenting and money and devotion to God, and serving sacrificially in ministry. Now, we don't agree on everything. And when she falls into sin by disagreeing with me, <laughs> then I have Eric as my teammate. <laughs> and you know what? I thank God for Eric, too. He and I have been worshiping together for almost 30 years. We've been ministering together for 24. And having Eric as a teammate and a partner in the ministry, it has given me so much strength time and time again. And again, we don't always agree. We have two different revelations of Jesus that are both very important. But we never give up on each other. I have had so many people walk out of relationship with me because they disagree with me or they don't like my leadership. But Eric, he's never walked out. We have stayed in unity for the faith of the gospel even when we don't agree or on everything, on minor issues or secondary issues. He has never let hurt feelings be an excuse to quit the team. And as many times as I have wanted to quit, it has been fighting for the faith of the gospel that has kept me from walking away. We need to be in unity as a church. Living worthy as citizens of heaven, of the gospel, that means we live in unity and we practice teamwork. Next, Paul talks about his fearlessness. Living as citizens worthy of the gospel first requires that we stand together grounded in the immovable work of the Holy Spirit. 
And then we strive together side by side like athletes determined to win the game. But Paul says there is more if we're going to live worthily. And that is to not be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Some of you guys can probably remember high school or college sports. And you remember stepping on the field or the court or the mat, and you're staring at a daunting opponent, and you tried your very best to look cool, unintimidated, hoping that it would be a sign of their destruction and your victory. Of course, the opponents had the same approach. But the bottom line was it didn't make a whole lot of difference how you postured because as the event progressed, everyone found out what they had or they didn't have. Well, in Philippi, it's not a game. The stakes were more than just a win or a loss. The opponents in Philippi came both from the ranks of Roman soldiers who despised the Christians' unromanness, and it also came from others who just found the lives of the Philippians to be a living rebuke to their pagan way of life. These two opponents meant that the threat of violence was always there and was sometimes activated. But what's Paul tell the Philippians? He says, don't be afraid. Don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. Now that word frightened, it's a rare Greek word. It's pituero. And it's a word that's used for describing a horse that is easily startled. So when a horse was easily startled by anything, whether it's a small animal or a bird or its own shadow, whatever, it was considered not a battle-ready horse. So this word petero, Paul uses it to describe a panic reaction. In other words, Paul is saying, don't panic. Keep your head. You're citizens of heaven. God is with us. Don't be intimidated. Don't be a skittish horse who's afraid of everything that comes its way. And then he goes on to say that this will be a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now, this doesn't mean that the Philippians' adversaries would necessarily recognize their own doom, but it was still a sign of their destruction and their judgment for rejecting the gospel and persecuting Christians. As, we, uh, as believers, we, we see the sign especially our salvation. So again, the question is, are we living fearless? Are we living fearless lives of the gospel? I know it can be scary to watch cancel cancel culture try to destroy careers and reputations. But let's remember what Paul told his own spiritual son, Timothy. He said, the Spirit of God, for the Spirit that God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power and love and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, His prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 
See, Paul wrote this to Timothy when Paul was waiting to be executed. I mean, at a time when Paul had practically every reason to be scared, but instead he was full of joy, he was full of power, he was full of love, he was full of self-discipline. We don't have a timid spirit. Say, I don't have a timid spirit. Say it again. I don't have a timid spirit. Because we are citizens of heaven. And guess what? Our citizenship in heaven can't be canceled. God living in your heart as the Holy Spirit can't be canceled. Your faith can't be canceled. Your love can't be canceled. Your self-discipline cannot be canceled. We have to live fearless to be people who live worthy of the gospel. We've got to be fearless. In 1984, Mehdi Debaj was imprisoned by the government of Iran on charges of apostasy because he converted from Islam to Christianity. And he languished in prison for about 10 years until his case was tried in 1994. And I just want to read some of the last lines of his written defense that he said when he was in court. He said, Jesus Christ is our Savior, and He is the Son of God. To, him, to know Him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner, have believed in His beloved person and all His words and miracles recorded in the gospel. And I've committed my life into His hands. Life for me is an opportunity to serve Him. And death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of His holy name, but I'm ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus, my Lord. Mandy Debaj was sentenced to execution, but he got released because the U.S. State Department put pressure on them. Only to be found dead in a park in Tehran. He was the third Christian who was murdered in Iran after they were released from prison. Debaj calmly stood his ground for the gospel, and it was a sure sign to his enemies of coming judgment and of his salvation. So I'm going to stop right here. Next week I want to talk about verses 29 and 30. Here's what we've learned so far from Paul about living worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. First, our citizenship is heavenly. You can take a picture if you want to. The lives that we live must be equal to the weightiness of the gospel. We must practice spiritual persistence. We must be unified in teamwork, and we must be fearless. Here's our action plan for this week. We all need to read Philippians chapter 3 and 4. 
I need to memorize 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And then we need to discuss with our family and our discipleship groups the principles that Paul has talked about here when it comes to living worthy of the gospel of Jesus. Just stand. I want to pray for us. I put these questions out there because we've got to think about what is it we are doing? What are we doing? How are we living? How is how we are living comparing to the weight and the glory of the gospel? So, Father, I'm asking today. I'm asking, God, because we can't do this without the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit to come to bring conviction where conviction needs to be. To bring hope where hope needs to be. To bring love where love needs to be. Power where power needs to be. Self-discipline where self-discipline needs to be. God, we are facing the same things that these Philippians were facing. Though not death, the world hates us and they are coming for us. God, I want to live my life worthy of the gospel, as Paul said. And we, the people of this church, want to live our lives worthy of the gospel. Every decision we're making, every action we are taking, you're watching. We're asking today, God, that you would help us. Let spiritual persistence be our, our, our way of doing things, God. Let our citizenship become first. Let the gospel be the center of our lives, God. Show us how to continue, how to, to, to live and work in teamwork and unity. And I pray, God, you make us fearless. So, Father, I pray that you would take this word and these things that you have declared to us through the word of God, you would drive them deep in our heart today, God. We need your help. We love you, God. We thank you for the courage and the privilege of being known and to know you as our God. So we bless you today, God. We give you thanks. We praise you with all our heart. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer this morning, we can have the altar team up here at the front. I want to bless you guys. Come back next week because we are going to talk about some really good stuff in verses 29 and 30. God bless.